Now we're turning back to the book of Exodus, as Bob said earlier this morning. Uh, It's our tradition in the summer to preach through the books of the Old Testament, and we are back in our final installment looking at Exodus. Last week, if you weren't with us or you would like to be reminded, God told Moses that Israel was going to build him a tabernacle, right? And he said anyone in Israel whose heart inclines them to participate in this construction project can give as long as their heart compels them to give, to build a tabernacle, which we said is nothing more than a tent. And tents were dwelling places at that time. God is saying, I am building myself a home, not just any home, but one that follows the pattern of his heavenly home, his heavenly home brought to earth. But tents were also places of business at the time. In a hospitality culture, like the ancient Near East cultures were, two parties didn't just get together out in the middle of nowhere and agree on something. They would go into a tent, most likely share a meal, at least a drink, and it was there that they would do business. Throughout the Old Testament, the tabernacle is often called the tent of meeting. And so, we're going to read through parts of chapter 25 and parts of chapter 26, God begins to tell Moses how to build the tabernacle and what to furnish it with. So as I read these selections from chapter 25 to start off with, I want you to see if you can figure out what business God is in. Chapter 25 of Exodus, beginning in verse 10. They shall make an ark of acacia wood. Two cubits and a half shall be its length, a cubit and a half its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. You shall overlay it with pure gold inside and outside. You shall overlay it and you shall make on it a molding of gold around it. And you shall put into the ark the testimony that I shall give you. You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two cubits and a half shall be its length and a cubit and a half its breadth. And you shall make two cherubim of gold of hammered work shall you make them on the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub on the one end and one cherub on the other end. Of one piece with the mercy seat shall you make the cherubim on its two ends. The cherubim shall spread out their wings above, overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings, their faces one to another. Toward the mercy seat shall the faces of the cherubim be. And you shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark. And in the ark you shall put the testimony that I shall give you. There I will meet with you, and from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. You shall make a table of acacia wood. Two cubits shall be its length, a cubit its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. You shall overlay it with pure gold and make a molding of gold around it. And you shall set the bread of the presence on the table before me regularly. You shall make a lampstand of pure gold. The lampstand shall be made of hammered work, its base, its stem, its cups, and its calyxes, and its flowers shall be of one piece with it. You shall make seven lamps for it, and the lamps shall be set up so as to give light on the space in front of it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please pray with me. Oh God, we come to you this morning and we are looking for words of life, words to mean something, to change us, to bring us hope and encouragement, to bring us rest. 
And on a surface reading of this passage, it seems hard to detect you in it. So I ask that you would send your spirit to us. Help us to hear you at work in your people here. Help us to know the love of Jesus for us and help us to be changed by it. Pray that my words would fall to the floor and only your words remain. And I pray this in the mighty name of your son, Jesus. Amen. I had graduated from college. Nicole and I were engaged, and I had had several informal interviews with a church in North Atlanta to become their next high school youth director before they invited me in for an official interview with the staff and the parents on a Sunday morning after the service. And I was really excited. They told me there were only two candidates left, and so I knew this was a pretty serious step, perhaps the final round of interviews. Then Nicole asked me a question that I hadn't thought of at all. What are you going to wear? I just assumed that, you know, Sunday morning church clothes would be fine. But the more we talked about it, the more we realized how serious this interview was. This was the final round. We wanted to make a good impression. I didn't want to be completely underdressed. And most likely, being a church in the suburbs of North Atlanta, there would be a few folks who would be a little bit more than dressed up. And so I decided the best impression I could make would be to wear a suit. I went and got fitted for a new suit, and to be perfectly candid with you, the first suit that I'd ever been fitted for. So I was excited. New suit, new job possibility, going to church at a place we hadn't been to church before. I walk in on Sunday mornings, and I kid you not, the pastor was wearing khakis and a button-down, and he was the most dressed-up person in there. I was completely overdressed. I stuck out like a sore thumb. And if you haven't noticed, I'm a rather large individual, so I really stuck out like a sore thumb. I looked rigid. I looked cold. I was totally uncomfortable. But because God is good, the people saw through that exterior and they chose to hire me anyway. After that uh, parents meeting, though, the pastor that would eventually become my boss looked at me and said, I don't think anybody's ever worn a suit in here. In the five years that we've been to church, not one suit. It's just not the kind of people we are. See, I didn't know that. I didn't know those people. Therefore, I didn't know the atmosphere I was walking into. I didn't understand the attitudes, the needs, the backgrounds of those people I was hoping to do work with. God knows his people. God knows Israel so well because he made them individually. He also called them specifically to be his family. He knows what they need. He knows how they need to be cared for how they need to be cautioned, how they need to be encouraged. He knows how to lead them. And so he has Moses build and outfit the tabernacle in a specific way so that whenever Israel goes there, what they are seeing is how God is working. It's a visible communication of God's work, what he's doing among his people. Now, you may have caught wind of this, that the descriptions of the tabernacle are rather lengthy. And to be frank, the next couple chapters are the opposite of an Ikea directions manual. There's too many of them. There's too much wording. It's easy for us to get lost in all of the specifics and begin to ask the question, so what? Why does it matter how tall and how wide the table is? Why does it matter what the exterior of the tabernacle is made of? So what? It's important for us to remember that what God is communicating, He's doing to Israel through the tabernacle, 
he accomplished in a truer and better way through Jesus. Jesus is not just God's presence in a tent in the midst of his people. Jesus is God himself living, breathing, behaving among his people. The tabernacle is to Israel what Jesus is to us. As God communicates through the tabernacle, God communicates through Jesus his plan, his work, which is important because what we see God communicating to Israel through the tabernacle is that he is all about rescue, he's all about relationship, and he's all about renewal. Conveniently, three R's for us this morning, rescue, relationship, and renewal. We're going to start by looking at God being about rescue, as if Israel hadn't seen God's rescuing hand enough to this point. He rescued them out of slavery in Egypt. As they were wandering in the wilderness, he rescued them by parting the Red Sea and letting them walk across on dry land. He rescued them when other nations attacked, when they were hungry, when they were thirsty. Over and over again, God rescues his people. And now, as they're building the tabernacle, the focal point, the thing that is at the very center of God's people in the middle of the tabernacle is a box. It's supposed to be made of acacia wood, but overlaid with gold. It's about four feet long, three feet wide, and about three feet high, and it's called an ark. And it's supposed to hold something. Verse 16, you shall put into the ark the testimony that I shall give you. Something special, something powerful. Hopefully, this is drawing up some memories for you about another situation in which God gives oddly specific directions for an ark to be built, into which something special is placed in order to rescue God's people. Genesis 6, God gives Moses, or excuse me, Noah, directions to build an ark. He puts Noah and his family into it and rescues them from the floodwaters. But more than that, he rescues all of humanity and all of the living creatures through that ark. This word, ark, is important. In addition to that, it's the same word used earlier in the book of Exodus for the basket that Moses' mom puts him in and sends him off down the Nile River to rescue him from Pharaoh's genocide. God is saying, in the middle of everything, Israel, in the middle, the very center I am a God of rescue. There's an ark in the middle of us. But not just in word, in appearance as well. As God begins to tell Moses what the tabernacle will look like, he starts to describe the exterior. And this is in chapter 26, verse 14 and 15, which is there in the bulletin as well. I just didn't read it at the beginning because there was a lot to read. God says, you shall make for the tent a covering of tanned ram skins and a covering of goat skins for the top. You shall make upright frames for the tabernacle made of acacia wood. So these frames, these these boards are basically going to provide the walls for the tabernacle. And on top is going to be this covering of tanned ram skins, or as we saw last week, a good translation would be sea cow skins. So a box with a covering on it, mirrors the description of the ark that God had Noah built. So no matter where Israel was, when they saw the outside of the tabernacle, they saw an ark of rescue. They knew God is a God of rescue, which is important 
because it's not always easy for us to remember that we need to be rescued. We don't always like the idea of having to be rescued. I don't know about you, but I really don't. I'd rather rescue myself. Particularly when it comes to illness or it comes to injury, I just would rather push through. Obviously, this has been on my finger for a long time. Earlier in COVID, I started having pain in my shoulder. I hadn't hurt it. I hadn't done anything to damage it, but I just had this intense pain. And so I responded as I always do. I'll just push through. It'll go away. Not a big deal. It didn't. And so I started using the same uh, methods I always do. Ibuprofen, rest, ice, heat, kind of a, you know, moving through all those different things. Still didn't work. So I went to the next best thing to help me rescue myself, which was WebMD and the internet. Not great. It didn't help anyway. So finally, I called a physical therapist and I said, hey, I need you to look at my shoulder. And it turns out that I probably had a stress-induced pinched nerve. And he showed me how to get rid of the pain and to relax a little bit. I didn't like the fact that I had to go ask someone to be rescued. I'd rather rescue myself. And not just when it comes to physical pain or suffering, but emotionally as well. If I'm not going to be able to rescue myself, I'd rather find somebody who can help me rescue myself. And that's who we often think Jesus is. Someone who is going to help us rescue ourselves. But the truth is, Jesus isn't a helper. He's not a, a teacher first. He's not a good example first. He is a rescuer first. And foremost, Jesus came to rescue us. In Romans 3, Paul says that Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. Propitiation being a big word meaning covering up the penalty that was due, rescuing his people from their sins. Jesus is a rescuer first and foremost. In the mid-third century BC, Jewish scholars translated the Old Testament from its original Hebrew into the common Greek that was used at the time. This was a, a document called the Septuagint, a, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And when they got to chapter 25 of Exodus, they get to this idea of mercy seat. And there's not really like a direct translation for it. So they use this word, hilasterion, to describe the mercy seat. Paul, centuries later, would go on to call Jesus in Romans 3, the hilasterion, the propitiation of our sins. God has always been in the business of rescuing his people in the tabernacle and then through Jesus. He came to rescue us. And the thing is, we lose sight of that because we'd rather rescue ourselves. And the world tells us there's plenty of ways to rescue yourself, to be a good person, to be better. If you're having problems, if life doesn't feel so great, just get a different job, work a little bit more, make a little bit more money, have some financial security, have a better work-life balance, eat only these foods, don't eat those foods. If you want to be sacrificial, give more money away. Give more of your time away. Make sure that you're serving people who are less fortunate than you, who really need you. Maybe your spouse or your kids. Give your life away for that. And those actions certainly are better than the opposites that they could be calling us to. But trusting in our own ability to rescue ourselves or finding people or things to help us rescue ourselves breeds this idea of independence. I'm okay. I can rescue myself. I'm pretty good on my own. 
Now, maybe you have some idea that the problems in your life, your failures, are a little bit more than just social failures. Maybe you recognize that they're falling short of God's standards that you might call your failure sin, and that sin actually has a consequence for it. Your heart still betrays you and tells you that there are ways you can negotiate out of those consequences. I wasn't really that bad. I do more good stuff than bad stuff. At least I'm not bad like that person over there. I'm just, I'm not going to do that anymore. So I'm okay. I'm good. Right? The gospel tells us, scripture tells us, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All sin deserves death. The wages of sin is death. You and I are under a death sentence. And Jesus' death and resurrection for us is the only thing that can rescue us. But we forget, which is why we need to tell each other our stories of rescue. Israel needed a reminder of rescue in the middle of their camp, and we need to remind each other of how we've been rescued by God. From our sins, yes, absolutely, but also from our sorrow, from our brokenness, from our confusion, from our loneliness. We need to remind each other that our God is a God of rescue. And in that way, rescue leads to relationship. God is a God of relationship. This ark, this box, had on top of it statues of cherubim, right? These are angelic creatures, and they are holding their wings up high, their faces looking at each other. And in the middle of that was this mercy seat. Verse 22 of chapter 25, God says, There I will meet with you from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony. I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. The mercy seat, the ark, was a place of rescue, but it was also a place of relationship. God is communicating with his people, not just once and then disappearing, but consistently from above the mercy seat. In addition to the ark inside the tabernacle, there was going to be this table of acacia wood overlaid with gold, and there would be plates and bowls and utensils on it. And also, God says, the bread of the presence, the bread of the presence. It was bread that was a reminder of the commitment that had been made between God and his people. So not only a sign that God was there present, but that Israel too was coming to this place. It was a a physical reminder of the commitment that Israel was saying, we're here and we are your people. And likewise, God was saying, I am here and I am your God. In addition to the ark and the table, there was this lampstand, right? A menorah with seven branches, seven lamps lighting the space in front of it. So we've got a seat, a table, and a lamp. It's a living room. God has designed his tabernacle to be a place where he can meet with his people, inviting them in to his home. It's all about relationship, which is really important because when we think about a rescuer and rescuees, often there is some sort of elevated status for the rescuer, right? We see this all the time in superhero movies, in movies where an ordinary citizen somehow becomes a rescuer. They are elevated to a status that can't be reached, 
certainly not the rescuee being on equal footing with the rescuer. And when we're talking about the almighty God who created all things out of nothing, who showed up by producing these plagues over Egypt so that Israel could be rescued, how much further could you get? And so it's important for us to see that God is rescuing his people and inviting them into relationship. One of the commentators on this passage said that everything put into the tabernacle communicates that God is choosing intimacy over distance. Intimacy over distance. And there is no fuller explanation, uh, excuse me, expression of this than Jesus. God choosing intimacy by taking on human flesh and living a normal human life. Born in a manger. He grew up, lost his baby teeth. He had friends. He got a stomach ache. He had to go to Jewish school. He watched his friends go off and get married and leave him behind. He lost friends. He had to watch them die. His whole life was about understanding humanity, getting to know what living life was like. The author of Hebrews tells us that Jesus, our great high priest, is able to sympathize with us, to sympathize, to understand, because he lived like us. He spent time like us. Jesus, through his life, his death, and his resurrection, knows you. When you put your faith in him, when you realize that he died for you, you are filled with the Holy Spirit. You are united to him in his death and resurrection. And so he is with you in your sorrow, in your suffering, in your weakness, in your loneliness. And that's really powerful. Ted Lasso is the best TV show out there right now. The best thing to come out of COVID, period. You might think Tiger King was best, but it's not. Ted Lasso is. If you don't have Apple TV, you might consider purchasing it so you could watch this show, Ted Lasso. It's about an American football coach who was hired to coach a British Premier League soccer team, right? And he's an incredibly kind, incredibly positive coach. And at one point in the season, something bad happens to the team. And I'm not going to give it away because you need to go watch it if you hadn't. And he walks into the locker room and all the players are sad and they're, they're really down, and it's very clear that not a single person is happy. And he says, you should be sad. What happened to us was a sad thing. But I promise you this, there is something worse out there than being sad, and that is being alone and being sad. Ain't no one in this room alone. That is powerful. That is powerful to know that when you are sad, when you are struggling, when you are broken, you are also united to Jesus, which means you are not alone. The other amazing thing about this tabernacle is that it wasn't just for one person, but it was for the community of Israel. God rescues his people into community. He didn't hear the cries of Israel in Egypt and start picking out individual Hebrews and saying, hey, I'm going to rescue you and you and you. And the easiest way for us to do this is if we all just go together. He rescued a people, a nation, a family. Likewise, Jesus did not die for individuals. He died for the church. 
There are no Christians apart from the church. When you become a Christian, you become part of God's family. You are united to the whole history of children of God throughout time. In the words of Ted Lasso, ain't no one out here who is alone. Ain't no one in Jesus that's alone. And with God, rescue and relationship have the end goal of renewal. It's my last point, renewal. This tabernacle was built with four layers of coverings, right? We saw the outer two most, the covering of sea cow skins, these acacia wood panels, and God tells Moses how to build it from the inside out. And so those two are kind of at the end of chapter 26. And so we're going to read the other parts of 26, and I'm going to work backwards. So we've got the covering of sea cow skins. We've got the acacia wood panels. Verse 7 of 26, you shall also make curtains of goat's hair for a tent over the tabernacle. Eleven curtains you shall make. That's the third most outer layer. But then the inner layer is chapter 26, verse 1. Moreover, you shall make the tabernacle with ten curtains of fine twined linen, blue and purple and scarlet yarns. You shall make them with cherubim skillfully worked into them. You can almost imagine walking up to this tent covered in skins with wood panels. You walk through an inner layer of curtains, linen curtains. But as you walk into the innermost layer, it is not plain. It is not drab. It is beautiful. Purple and blue and red curtains on the inside. And in those curtains is wo- are woven these gold and silver cherubim. Cherubim are these celestial creatures created by God to be his heavenly servants. Whenever we see scripture describe God's throne, around the throne there are cherubim worshiping, praising, and serving God at all times. And what we see is as you walk into the tabernacle, you're walking into that throne room. The the cherubim, the linens, it's to make you see, feel like you're there. We got to experience something like this when we went as a family to Disney before COVID hit. One of the coolest meals that we ate was at the Beast's Castle from Beauty and the Beast. It was awesome. They have done such a good job making you feel like you've gone back to the 18th century and you're in a French castle. There are suits of armor on the hallway walls. There are coat of arms everywhere. And the, the dining room, the ballroom is just gorgeous. These sweeping staircases, these flying buttresses. It is, it's hard to not think that you are there in France. It was designed, like all of Disney, to fool you to think that you're actually there. The tabernacle was designed similarly, but not to fool you. It was not a trick. It was to actually welcome you into God's throne room, into the presence of God. And it's a picture of what creation should have been. God dwelling with his people. But not just how it should have been, how it will be. The innermost section of the tabernacle is partly a promise of God to renew creation, to bring everything back, including his people, to the way it should have been, right? The lampstand, this menorah that was there, the way that it is described to Israel fits the description of every single ancient Near East tree 
that we see from any culture of this time period. Whenever a tree is described, it's described like this lampstand. It has leaves, it has flowers, the flowers hold the lamps, the lamps give light. God gives the directions that a tree of light should be built. There's two other places in Scripture where God dwells with His people and there is a special tree there. The first is the garden. God creates all things out of nothing. He lives with His people, Adam and Eve, and the tree of life is in the middle of it, giving a sustenance to everything that God has created. And then because Adam and Eve sin, that's lost until the second instance, which is Revelation. And the new heavens and the new earth come down They cover the entire earth, the heavenly Jerusalem, and in the middle of that city is God's heavenly throne and the tree of life. This tabernacle is all about this rescue on social media was awesome. But it actually reminded me of another story about Greg Olson from years ago. I don't remember exactly when. It was around the time that his son was born. But he was playing tight end for the Carolina Panthers. And this was when Nicole and I lived in Charlotte. So we were rooting for the Panthers. It was a great, great thing. Uh, his, uh, Greg Olson's son, TJ, was born. And they quickly learned that he was born with a congenital heart condition. And they knew that he wasn't going to be able to survive unless he got special attention. Well, Greg Olson plays in the NFL. He's incredibly wealthy. He has access to the best medical care on the planet. So it wasn't like there was a huge concern for him. And yet, Jerry Richardson, the owner of the Carolina Panthers, used his own private jet to fly little T.J. Olson up to Boston. And TJ's whole family up to Boston to see the cardiovascular surgeons up there, considered to be some of the best cardiovascular surgeons in America. Now, why did Jerry Richardson do this? Was it because he hoped uh, Greg Olson would stay around and play for the Panthers longer? Was it to get good media attention for his kind deeds? Maybe that was in his heart. But the real reason was because in 2009, Jerry Richardson had received a heart transplant from those same doctors up in Boston. He himself had experienced rescue, and he knew that his job was to bring others to that rescuer. He chose, he was changed by this rescue in order to help T.J. Olson be rescued as well. Jesus is the perfect picture of a God who is all about rescue, and he's all about relationship, and he's all about renewal. When you are rescued, you are rescued into relationship with God and his people. And it's through that rescue and those relationships that he renews you. How is he renewing you now? Let's pray. God, we come before you thankful that you did not leave us under condemnation of sin, that you saw us with our death penalty hanging around our neck. You heard our cries for help and you came to us to rescue us. Jesus, that you chose willingly to go to the cross and that through that you bring us back into a relationship with you, but you also bring us into a family, the body of Christ. I pray that you would help us remind each other of the rescue that you've shown us you would help us love each other and remind each other of the relationship we have with you. 
and that through your work of your spirit in us and through the relationships you've brought us into, you would renew us, making us new again. I pray this in the mighty name of your son, Jesus. Amen.